In a moment, I'm going to read Psalm 8. Come on, be honest. How many of you were secretly a little bit worried that today we would do Psalm 4 and the awful truth would dawn that Pastor Jeffrey is actually going to go through all the Psalms one at a time for 150 weeks, probably plus about an extra year for Psalm 119. Wouldn't do it to you. Wouldn't dream of it. Uh, We are going to pick and choose some of the... If I say the most important Psalms, I run the risk of saying some bits of the Bible aren't important. What we're actually going to be doing is picking out some of the Psalms which either highlight distinctive themes of the Psalter, which it's worth focusing on, or which I think may be pastorally most helpful, or which, in the case of today's Psalm, Psalm 8, feature most prominently in the way that the New Testament scriptures quote from the Psalms. You may know that the New Testament quotes from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. The one text that is quoted more than any other in the New Testament is from the Psalms. It's Psalm 110. Psalm 8 is also quoted on a number of occasions, and one such occasion is Hebrews chapter 2, which I've printed on the other side of this handout. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and talk about this. And and really what I want to share with you is a a big picture vision of the scripture's answer to the question at the top of the page. What is man? What are people for? Who are men and women? What is humanity? So let me pray. And then uh, please feel free to keep topping up your supply of burgers and other bits and pieces and munching as we go and we'll get done I hope slightly before seven o'clock so that we can start our singing on time let's pray merciful father we thank you that your name is majestic in all the earth and we marvel at what this psalm says that you are mindful of humanity and you care for people like us we pray that you'd help us today to draw some biblical threads together and to perceive what it should mean to say that humanity, men and women, have this privileged place within the created order. And we ask that you'd help us to track with all the many different scriptural threads and scriptural texts that we'll need to try and keep a handle on as we explore this grand and wonderful theme. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So then, Psalm 8. One of the first things you'll notice about it, which I've highlighted for you in red, 
is the first and last verses, which declare the majesty of God in all the earth or over all the earth. Psalm 8 is framed with not an observation, but um, an exclamation of praise concerning the majesty, the unparalleled and indescribable and infinite glory of God and how the, the name of God, that is the, the, the designation that we apply to him, the label that we apply to him, which speaks of his character, is majestic. Everything else in all creation may be glorious, but the name of the Lord is majestic in all the earth. The literary device that's being employed here is called an inclusio, or an inclusion, um, and it's, it's a particular literary technique where what the, what the writer, in this case the psalmist, the poet, is doing is telling you what the whole of the poem is about by beginning and ending with the same theme. Just by way of illustration, if you have a, a meeting in a church, like a church elders meeting, if you sat in on our church elders meetings, you'd notice that we begin and end with prayer. Well, that functions in the same kind of way. It's our way of recognizing and expressing our dependence on God. And you might say that prayer forms a kind of inclusio around what we do because everything that we're doing, we're seeking the wisdom of the Lord as we do it. It actually used to be the case in uh, Puritan times that people would pray before and after their meals. I'm not saying we should now do that and we're really ungodly because we don't, but it expressed the same thought that everything we're doing in between these two bookends is a way of expounding the truth contained in the bookends. And so if you knew that about Psalm 8, what you'd expect to find within the psalm would be an extended meditation, perhaps, on the character of God, or reflections on his mighty deeds of power, or uh, maybe you'd find a Uh, expressions of what he's done in creation or his sovereignty or his mercy or his goodness because after all this psalm is all about how majestic the name of the Lord is and so you read this psalm in astonishment because you search in vain for expressions about the majesty or dignity or character of God This psalm instead talks about the astonishing dignity that God has bestowed on man. Now, man in Hebrew means the same as man in Old English, in the sense that it means mankind. We're not to think that um, that man in verse 4 at the centre of the psalm is man as opposed to woman. Think of it as mankind, but let's preserve the old translation. We don't need to pander to every new linguistic fad by changing the way we translate our Bibles. You you understand that man means humanity. Man also means individual people and individual man. And so although this psalm does speak in the second half of verse 1 about the glory that God has set above the heavens, how has God shown his glory? How has God shown his majesty? God has shown his majesty supremely by doing what it says in verse 4, right at the centre of the psalm. What is man 
that you are mindful of him. The son of man that you care for him. The psalmist steps back in bewilderment at the words which the spirit has inspired within him as he realizes that the thing that is so majestic about God is that he cares for man. The thing that's so glorious about God is that he's mindful of this six-foot-something-tall bag of juice and bones. What are we that God should care about us so much? Why, Why should it be that we are so significant? This psalm, particularly in its connection with Hebrews chapter 2, which quotes from it, provides the answer. I want a shortcut to the answer for you. And then I'm going to drag you through the biblical theological and covenant theological um, mire on the way to the conclusion. I'll shortcut to the solution first. Um, Humanity has the astonishing dignity of being those whom God has called to rule over the created order in his name, in his presence, for his purposes. We're put in charge. And supremely, that calling was fulfilled by Jesus. And it can only be fulfilled by Jesus because of the catastrophe of Genesis 3, the sin of Adam, And this psalm, really, the context for understanding it is to think the calling of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to fill and subdue the earth and rule over it. And then, oh my goodness, the the catastrophe of Genesis 3, the rebellion of Adam and Eve and their submission to the serpent. What's God going to do about this? And this psalm introduces us to a long story is the story of humanity's relationship to the world and particularly and this is going to take you by surprise um, the story of humanity's relationship to the angels stay with me from Genesis chapter 3 up to the coming of Christ and that's the the long story that I want to take you through I I hope that some of the details, though they might seem a little obscure, they will inform your understanding of uh, what biblical history is all about and how different parts that you may be aware of, how they relate to each other, before we come back to the conclusion at the end that we have this astonishing dignity in Christ of being given the privilege of ruling over the created order. So let's just jump in um, to this. The first thing, I mean, before we get into the details of the psalm, what's the first... Even before you notice the beginning and the ending of Psalm 8, you might notice something else about it. You might notice it's the 8th Psalm. That sounds trivial. But the editorial structuring of the book of Psalms is very significant. We've seen that already. Psalm 1 and 2, they're set next to each other. Psalm 1, 1 and Psalm 2, 12, blessed is the man blessed are all. And then Psalm 3 introduces the big theme of, one of the big themes of the book of Psalms, the, the, the suffering king who's harassed and harangued by his enemies. What you notice is that theme uh, 
echoes through Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. If you just flick through Psalms 3 to 7, verse, uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 3, verse 1, How many are my foes, many are rising against me. Psalm 4, verse 1, Answer me when I call, God of my righteousness. Why do you need God to answer you? Well, because he's surrounded by men who turn his honour into shame and love vain words and seek after lies. You see Psalm 4, he's, the psalmist is in a similar position. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. It's the anguished cries of one who needs the Lord's help. Psalm 6, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Psalm 7, verse 1, Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers. Deliver me. Can you see there's this theme? Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 are all about different ways in which the king is crying out to God, being pursued and hated by his enemies. And in one psalm, perhaps he's ill as well. He's lying on his bed and he's feeling sick. And then you get to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why? Well, the decision to make this the eighth psalm, I want to suggest to you, is a very significant one. Hands up if you heard me talk about the significance of the number eight in the Bible before. I want to know how much of this I need to repeat. Oh, quite a lot. Excellent. As in, quite a lot of people don't have their hands up. One of the... You know very well that numbers in the Bible are significant. The number 12, tribes of Israel. The number seven, days of creation. The number eight is also very interesting because if you gather together all the different things that are connected with the number eight in Scripture, you notice a pattern. They're associated with the beginning of a new age or the beginning of a new world. There were eight people in the ark and Peter takes pains to point out that there were eight people um, in the ark. You give your ox to the Lord as a sacrifice in connection with certain rituals On the eighth day, you circumcise your son under the old covenant on the eighth day. Because he's being brought into the new community of the people of God. David was Jesse's eighth son. Um, If you're reading through 1 Chronicles 26, like you do, and you're you're looking at all those names, because obviously that's what you do in your personal devotions, um, and you notice that... um, the divisions of labour for the gatekeepers are enumerated, and the, th- the sons of Meshelemiah sorry, Meshelemiah and Obed Edom are listed. And lo and behold, as the chronicler carefully enumerates Obed Edom's sons, he gets to, and I quote, Puelithai the eighth, for God blessed him. As though it's the most natural thing in the world that either the eighth son should be blessed or that to have eight sons will be a blessing. Jesus was resurrected on which day of the week? You all want to say the first day of the week, right? Well, the first day of the week is the eighth day of the week because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, yeah? When you get to the book of Numbers, you know, there are three, three sections in the book of Numbers. There's a priestly and a kingly and a prophetic section. And um, the the final section um, is preparing to enter the land. And the phrase is used to describe where they are. And it's, quote, in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And guess how many times that phrase appears in that final section of the book of Numbers. As they're preparing to enter the new place in which they're going to live. Eight times. 
And this is the eighth psalm. So perhaps it shouldn't surprise us too much when we discover, after the long meander through all the exegetical detail I'm about to drag you through, that this psalm speaks about the new calling we have as brothers and sisters of Christ in the man who was resurrected on the eighth day, the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished what the old man failed to do, what the old man, Adam, failed to do. Okay, ready, let's jump into this exegetical quagmire. We have, I'm going to try and finish in 18 minutes. <laughs> we'll see. You remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Yes? And notice what they were told to do. I've told you this a thousand times, and you've all read it uh, a thousand and one times. They were told to fill and subdue the earth and have, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over, the fish and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in other words, every living thing that was created was supposed to be, you might say, under the authority of Adam and Eve. So here's how the hierarchy was supposed to work. You've got God at the top. I was going to do this in a diagram on your handouts, but um, uh, time intervened, and I didn't get around to it. And my, my word diagram-making skills are pretty feeble. But here's, you can imagine it. God at the top, and man and woman underneath him. And you might say, within that, the man ought to take the initiative and lead his wife. And then underneath them, all the other creatures of the world. So God, man and woman and all the other creatures of the world. And that's how it's supposed to be. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is you've got this creature rocks up, this snake, and starts asking questions. Uh, Did God really say, yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. And you notice that what happens is that he talks to Eve, and Adam is completely silent. You discover in chapter 3, verse 7, that he was with her, but he said nothing. He just did what she suggested, and both of them, between them, shuffled God to the bottom of the pile and disobeyed the word that he'd given them back in chapter 2, that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You see what's happened? What has happened has been an inversion of the order of creation. It's supposed to go God, man and woman, because husbands are supposed to lead their wives and protect them, and then all the other creatures. What's actually happened is the serpent's taken charge, and he spoke to the woman. The man was completely passive, like, oh, yeah, I'll eat that. And they shunted God to the bottom of the pile. The fall was, among other things, an inversion of the created order. And so now creatures, and particularly this creature, is at the top. Now, what is this creature? It's a serpent. It's more crafty than the other creatures. Of course, we discover in the book of Revelation, if we hadn't guessed it already from Genesis 3, which you all had, that this ancient serpent is the devil, Satan himself. It's a physically embodied manifestation of an angelic being who is a sinful angelic being, but still a creature. Angels count as creatures. What ought to happen is that angels, along with all the other creatures apart from humanity, ought to be under the authority of godly, faithful men and women. But now what Adam has chosen is a different way. He's chosen a different path. So by the end of Genesis chapter 3... You notice what's happened? Verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, because he's eaten of the fruit. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim, which are angelic forms, angelic beings, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So previously, what was supposed to happen, interesting word that, Genesis 3.24, guard the way to the tree of life. Adam was put in the garden to guard it, Genesis chapter 2. But now you don't get to guard the garden. You don't get to keep the garden. You don't get to work the garden. Now the angels, the cherubim, an evil one of which you have voluntarily subjected yourself to by inverting the order of creation. Now you've put them in charge. Now they're in charge. This, this is the sin that you've chosen. It's the path that you've chosen. And it's the destiny that the Lord has consigned you to. So now Adam and Eve live outside the sanctuary. They're outside of the presence of God. They can't get back into the garden because the angel's in charge. And so the rest of the history of the Bible from Genesis 3 on picks this story up. And the question is, well, how are men and women going to get back into the garden? Now, there's a temporary answer to that that's provided when God acts through Abraham and particularly later through Moses to establish a replica sanctuary called the tabernacle. Now, you've all heard of the tabernacle. Many of you will have noticed, if you read the uh, instructions for the design of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, just if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, that the... The architectural plans and the details of the furniture in the tabernacle are supposed to make it look like a garden. I'll give you some examples. Look with me. Exodus 25, verse 31, to the end of the chapter, is the instructions for making the golden lampstand. Okay, that's useful because it can be dark in there. Uh, No windows. But this isn't just to shed light. Look, verse 31, the lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three on one side and three on the other side. And verse 33, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower. You know what a calyx is? Calyx is a little round thing that's underneath the bud that turns into the flower on some flowering plants and trees. This is a replica tree. Why would you want a replica tree in the tent? Well, because the tent is a replica garden, and there were trees in that there garden. And this tree, huh, this tree is always there to shine light in the sanctuary. It's fueled by oil. That's right, the oil of the Spirit. So it's permanently burning because God's presence is always there in the sanctuary. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get back in there to eat from the tree of life? Uh, I am the vine and you are the branches, said somebody once. You see how that... Okay, we'll come to that another time maybe. So you've got a lamp sandwich looks like a tree. Uh, Exodus 30 verse 17. A little bit later... You've got instructions for making a bronze basin of water. Well, that, you've got that in the Garden of Eden as well. It, in the garden, there's rivers flowing through it. 
This basin is about 18 inches across. It's a fairly feeble amount of water. But you notice as the temple makes way... F- sorry, as the tabernacle makes way for the temple, and then Solomon's temple makes way for the, the, the temple in Ezekiel's vision, the amount of water increases. Here, it's a little bit of water, a little basin, like a bucket. You can lift it up. Um, by the time you get to Solomon's temple, it's like five meters across and a meter and a half high, and it probably weighs about 18 tons. Just the water inside it would weigh 18 tons. And by the time you get to Ezekiel's vision of the temple, there's so much water in there that it's all flowing out down the side of the mountain and coming out of the walls of the temple, and it's making a river that's so deep you can't even swim across it. And by the time it gets to the, Red, the Dead Sea, pardon me, it's so much of it, it's making the salty water of the Dead Sea fresh so that things can live in it. And so Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, rivers of living water will flow up from within him. Can you see all these themes are pointing in a certain direction? But what we're seeing here is the, in seed form, a miniature sanctuary being created with trees, waters. Notice chapter 26, verse 1. This is what the tabernacle is going to look like. When you approach it, okay, on the outside it's going to have animal skins, but if you knew how it was built and if you were allowed to see inside, what you'd see, chapter 26, verse 1, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Flip over the page. Chapters 31 to 30, verses 31 to 33. The veil between the most holy place and the holy place that, that keeps you out of the place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Similarly, you shall make that with blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you hang it on four pillars and so on and so forth. Now, I, don't, I, I would ask you to close your eyes and imagine, but I, that sounds a little bit like kids' Sunday school. But if you like, close your eyes and imagine. This is the inside of a tent lit with an oil lamp. Blue, purple, scarlet, gold, cherubim. It looks fiery, doesn't it? Think of the colours. And the cherubim, particularly the cherubim that are woven into the dividing boundary or barrier between the holy place and the most holy place are like a little replica of the cherubim that are designed to keep you out of the Garden of Eden. You can't go in to this place where the tree of life is and the water which gives life is because the cherubim are there, architecturally engraved on this building to keep you out. And it's not just the building, it's the people who work there, who works in the tabernacle. Priests, very easy, right? What do the priests wear? Well, Exodus explains. Very, very particular about what the priests should wear. Exodus 28. Bring near to me Aaron, your brother, and his sons from among the people of Israel to serve as priests. This is verse 1. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you get all the skillful people to do it. What are they going to look like? Well, verse 4. They shall make the garments an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, a sash, holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. What do the priests look like? They look like the cherubim. The priests are like living, visible 
physical representations of the guardians that were there to keep Adam, man, humanity, out of the sanctuary where God is. And, of course, you could come near if you were so minded, but when you come near Leviticus chapter 1, you better bring with you an animal because the priest is going to... Well, you're going to need to lay your hands on the animal and press down and pray some prayers over it. And then the priest is going to take a knife and slice the animal's throat and chop it up into little bits and set it on fire. Which, coincidentally, is exactly what would have happened to you if you tried to walk past the cherubim to get back into the Garden of Eden. Because the priests are like cherubim, correct? Which is why in Numbers chapter 3, it is they who guard, they who keep, And they who work, same verbs are used, shamar and avad, guard or keep and work. It's they who work in the sanctuary, because you can't. It's as though what God has done is ever since Adam and his offspring, sorry, Adam and his wife, Eve, relinquished their privilege as being the ones in the sanctuary, in the presence of God, with the vocation to go into the world and rule and fill and subdue, Now it's like, get out, you're not allowed in the sanctuary anymore. We'll have angels or their human representatives, the priests, as kind of temporary guardians, superintendents, whose job it is to keep you out. You may not come near. If you come near, you come near via a representative who is killed in your place. And so it's fascinating then to think about the the law... I don't like that word, the Torah, the whole old covenant system of worship and teaching in this light. Basically, it was administered by the priests. The priests are put in charge as kind of replica cherubim. Really, the cherubim are put in charge. The angels are put in charge, working through their agents, the priests, to superintend your worship of God for a while and to keep you out of the privileged place that your forefather Adam once occupied. This is exactly how the New Testament reflects on this. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. And you skip over this every time you read Stephen's speech. And maybe you don't. Maybe you pause on it and you think, what on earth is Stephen talking about? I never realised that was what was happening. Right at the end of Stephen's speech, he basically recounts the whole history of Israel. This is going to be interesting. I won't read the whole thing. He recounts the whole history of Israel in order to indicate that the people he's speaking to, the Sanhedrin, who have opposed Jesus, are just like their forefathers. They always resist the Spirit. They always always resist the ones whom God has sent. And they always resist the word that God has spoken. But look at verse 53, how he expresses this. You who received the law that was delivered by angels but did not keep it. It's like Stephen just drops that in as though it's the most obvious thing in the world. Obviously the law was delivered by angels. It's not unique to Stephen. Galatians 3.19, just flip over the page, a couple of pages for me. Galatians 3. Um, This speaks in a bit more detail about the law. We should read a couple of verses from here. Verse 19. Why then the law? What was the law for? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Well, obviously, because Adam and Eve. Until the offspring, singular, should come, 
to whom the promise had been made. It was put in effect through angels by an intermediary. See, once again. Uh, Later on, verse 23, Paul speaks of that era as the era before faith came, that is, before the age of the Spirit through faith came. We were held captive under the law. We're not allowed to go into the presence of God. We're imprisoned until the coming faith era should be revealed. So then the law was our, literally, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian. The law was there with the priests, like human representatives of the cherubim, to keep you out of the sanctuary until that era of faith came. And there's one more text that speaks about the angelic connection to the law in this way, and it's on the reverse side of your handout. So you've met Hebrews chapter 2. You all know what Hebrews chapter 1 is about. Hebrews chapter 1 is about the supremacy of Christ over the angels, and indeed over all other uh, things and people and beings. And the author writes, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, therefore we must pay, play, sorry, we must play, no, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? To put it another way, if the law, which was spoken by angels through their angelic messengers, the priests, that proved to be the kind of message where if you ignored that, you got into a whole load of trouble. How much more do we need to pay attention to what we've heard through Christ? Keep going. It was declared first by the Lord, then attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Remember Pastor Shaw's point in the podcast about speaking in tongues, signs and wonders, marks of God doing something unique and miraculous to inaugurate a new era in history and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, this is when you get to the quote from Psalm 8. We're almost done, and then you can sing, I promise. Now, verse 5. It was not to angels, the author says, that God has subjected the world, literally the world that is coming, the coming world, of which we're speaking. Just pause there a second. It was to angels that God subjected the old world, the world from Adam onwards. Genesis 3, cherubic guardians, priests dressed as angels, giving you the law as a schoolmaster, keeping you out of the sanctuary except through animal sacrifices. It was to angels that God subjected that world. But it's not to angels that God subjected the world that is coming, that is the world that is dawning, this new age in Christ. It has been testified somewhere, and I love how the writer of Hebrews says that, because it's like you can't remember where the Bible verse is, which is such a relief for all those of us who sometimes can't remember the, the chapter and verse of the, the verse we're trying to remember. Quote from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him, and here the writer glosses the Hebrew of Psalm 8, which says, a little lower than the angels. There's another possible reading of that Hebrew. It could mean for a little while or for a short time. That's how the writer of Hebrews chooses to understand it. 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You made man lower than the angels for a while. Then you have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything under his feet. Then he explains a little bit what he means. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Everything is under his feet. Everything. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection to Christ. We don't, you certainly don't see everything in subjection to the body of Christ, do we? But what do we see? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So he's made lower than the angels, who's born under law, Galatians 3. Born of Galatians 3 or Galatians 4? Oh, somewhere it says, I can't remember. If it's good enough for the author of Hebrews, it's good enough for me, okay? Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he carries on, he carries on. The point of what he's saying here and is about to elaborate is that the way in which God has reversed this upside down order of creation, the way in which God has shunted man above the rest of the created order again, where he belongs, is in Christ. Christ is the one who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while and then crowned in the suffering of death so that he might taste death for everyone. And so now we stand in this astonishing position. We stand downstream of Christ's overturning of that upside-down universe. The world has been put right. The new day, the eighth day, has dawned. Because Psalm 8 has been fulfilled in the man who is now seated on the throne of heaven since his ascension, Acts chapter 1 in whom we are given this renewed calling to fill the earth, subdue the earth, to be ready to suffer like him, to do it. Yeah, because then if anyone wants to come after me, let him take, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And to do so with the same, well, with precisely that optimism that we can have because we look back and see Jesus has conquered. All things have been put under the feet of Jesus. And so we can confidently live as those who are with Christ and in Christ if we're called to suffer to suffer like him and to take dominion over the world in which God has placed us that's what man is that's the hope that Psalm 8 anticipates that's the hope that Jesus has fulfilled let me lead us in prayer and then we can sing merciful God and Father we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for the glory we see in him perhaps a little bit more clearly or with renewed perspectives after this whistle-stop tour through a few oft-neglected corners of the scriptures. We thank you that you've chosen to reveal your majesty by making a man great, crowning Jesus with glory and honour, giving him dominion over the works of your hands, and then bestowing on us the breathtaking and incalculable privilege of ruling with him 
Teach us to embrace his privilege as he did, with grace, with fortitude, ready to suffer and to give ourselves for others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Whittlesey.